0: Uh, Yeah, he certainly had a significant uh, impact upon Baptist history Uh, not only in that he was one of many Baptists who were persecuted for their faith in in Britain uh, as well as even here in the New World uh, in in the middle of the 17th century. But Keach also was uh, significant in that he just left his mark on a number of things uh, that we practice even today. For example, the practice of hymn singing. Uh, Keach introduced that practice, which was very controversial in the latter part of the 19th uh, excuse me of the 17th century in the 1690s, and uh, it was not welcomed by all in his church. It created a significant division that he really hated. Uh, But nevertheless, he was convinced that it was the right thing to do and so he persevered in that. And and really the fact that we sing hymns in worship today can largely be attributed to the fact that he took that stand when he did.
1: One of the things about Benjamin Keach is as an an earlier Baptist, the earliest of the second generation, he he had a very warm evangelical Calvinism. Later Baptists beyond him became hyper-Calvinistic and sort of, the, it was a very chilling effect upon Baptists in England. But Keach shows you that that's not necessary to being a Baptist, being Reformed Baptist even. That he, he had, from the beginning, Baptists had uh, a warm-hearted, loving, evangelical uh, expression of Calvinism, which later uh, Andrew Fuller recovered, uh, but we see first um, in Keats and, and before him as well.
0: Also, uh, Keach made, uh, made his mark on a number of, of Baptist publications and, and confessions of faith uh, over the, the period of time that he was pastoring in London. Uh, certainly, we uh, owe a great debt to him in helping to keep the, the theology and the, the biblical aspects of those confessions faithful and true. He, uh, as I said, he wrote many things that were both entertaining as well as spiritually edifying uh, in the time that he was there. So he really left a significant mark upon Baptist history, even though he only lived to be 64 years old. Uh, He did just a, a wonderful job in that time and I think used what the Lord gave him in a wonderful way to make a real difference.
1: I did my uh, research doctoral dissertation on Benjamin Keech's doctrine of justification as he articulated it against Richard Baxter. And so the main way that Keech has affected me is he has shown how justification propels and motivates many aspects of Christian faithfulness. Uh, in a way, even though Keech's pre merrowman the, the Merrow controversy in Scotland, Uh, Keech is a merriment, he's an early forerunner of the marrow theology, uh, which means that we live upon the imputed righteousness of Jesus, that none of the other motives for obedience in Christ uh, are founded outside of justification. We must be motivated on the basis of imputed righteousness, which comes in union with Jesus, and all the other motives are connected to that. So that comes out in my preaching. Uh, to myself and my ministry to my wife and my children and in my ministry to my church.
0: He really is something that just about every minister, every pastor can relate to because he didn't receive any formal training. He did everything that he did uh, on his own, through his own labors, through conversations he had with others who instructed him and guided him. Uh, He studied on his own uh, and just did a wonderful, wonderful job that really I think is exemplary for us uh, in, in laboring faithfully to advance himself as much as he could. And he did not shy away from really any facet of his ministry that required uh, him to intervene and often to take very courageous stands. Whether it was early in his life, in his 20s, when he's standing up for Baptist distinctives, which got him into uh, great trouble with the law, nearly cost him his life as well as later in life when he's trying to, to speak against those who uh, misunderstood the, the nature of justification or who were trying to advocate the cause of the Quakers, uh, just, just a whole host of things that he did uh, that I think is just exemplary, a great model for us who are trying to be faithful to God and, and be uh, God's men and God's leaders in, in the churches.
1: We hope you'll join us in Owensboro, Kentucky for a class on the life and the ministry of Benjamin Keach, September 4th through the 7th.
2: Welcome to the Weekly Discourse. I'm your host, Bryce Bigham, Director of Media and Communications at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We are on the Man of God Network, a new podcast network that is a media ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. The Man of God Network exists primarily to help the church in her mission to train qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry. We want to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that Christ is better known, loved, and exalted. Well, as you heard at the beginning of this podcast episode, we are looking forward to our upcoming modular course offering on the life and ministry of Benjamin Keach, which will take place here in Owensboro, Kentucky. Uh, God willing, this will be held on September 4th through the 7th, and it's going to be taught by Dr. Tom Hicks, pastor of First Baptist Church of Clinton, Louisiana, and Dr. Chris Holmes, pastor of Yellow Creek Baptist Church. It's going to assist students in understanding the background, life, and legacy of Benjamin Keach, and enable them to appreciate the conviction, labors, and hardship of particular Baptists in 17th century England and to present Benjamin Keach as a model for pastoral ministry and theological fidelity among particular Baptists. It's sure to be an excellent course. Very excited for this. Uh, we're also going to be offering this in a live stream format. Um, so that uh, any CBTS students can tune in uh, via Zoom uh, for this class. Uh, and, and also, you don't have to be a student at CBTS to participate in this class. Uh, you can audit the course through our live stream or in person. Uh, so to learn more about this, this class, the registration and fees, you can visit cbtseminary.org slash Keech2020. If you're not familiar with Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, we are a confessional Reformed Baptist Seminary providing affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men. You can complete a seminary education while staying in your church. So pastors listening, if if you have a gifted man in your congregation and you would like him to receive a theological education while remaining in your church under your mentorship, uh, consider us at CBTS. We're grateful for the opportunity to partner with local churches, both here in the United States and around the world as well. If you haven't heard of the Church Partnership Program, I'd like to tell you about this program. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for the seminary, any student in your church can attend without paying tuition. And in addition to that, any member of your church can audit our courses for no cost to them. So to learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. This week's discourse is a continuation of Dr. Michael Haken's course on biblical spirituality in the Christian church. Uh, last week, Dr. Haken talked about spirituality among the particular Baptists, and he traced the movement from its rich beginnings through a period of spiritual decline and through a period of revival expressing itself in missionary zeal. He talked about the spirituality and the deep friendship of William Carey and Andrew Fuller. And this week, Dr. Haken tells the story of Samuel Pierce.
3: And uh, so Pierce then graduates in 1789. It's, a, it's a not the best of years to be graduating because it's the beginning of the French Revolution. And we'll see what that means in a minute. And he goes to Birmingham. Birmingham is in the Midlands. That's about, today you could do that in probably three hours. It probably would have taken him about a day or two to get there. Birmingham was the beginning. It was at the. It was in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we're told that the place never stopped. The noise of the place, you could hear it 10, 15 miles away. The factories, the clanging, the filth. You could see the pall of smog hanging over the city. One of the visitors a few years before Pierce got there noticed men walking around with green hair. Uh, They weren't dyeing their hair green. You know, people dye their hair green and purple and red, whatever today. It was because they were working with uh, uh, various chemicals that dyed their hair green. He said he saw people with green hair and bright red eyes. The The whites of their eyes were completely bloodshot. Uh, it was a very, very dangerous uh, environment because of the chemicals that were used in the factories. Uh, Birmingham is the key manufacturer for, for weapons. And Birmingham is a, it was really at the heart of the British Empire. The British Empire built its power base uh, on its struggle with France. And the, 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 the place where all their weapons and guns were built was, uh, was Birmingham at significant cost to the inhabitants uh, because of the the pollution, the smog, and so on. Child labor was common. Um, Up until probably two years ago, I I knew that most of of Pierce's congregation initially were illiterate. I didn't have proof of it. I figured it's right in the heart of the city. He goes right into the heart of the city, builds a church, 330 people converted in 10 years under his ministry. Uh, and become members of the church. Probably another 150 who didn't become members. I figured they had to be illiterate, most of them, because they worked in the factories. Uh, there's no child labor laws. You've got children working in there from 6, eight, ten years old. Men working 14, 15 hours a day. Uh, it's a horrific environment. And uh, I found a letter in an American journal from around 1790 somewhere, the early 1800s in in Boston, where one of his letters was reprinted, and he talks about how most of his congregation, when he when they well, most of his congregation when they first come to the church, cannot read or write, and so he starts a Sunday school within within a year or two. Of the Sunday school has over a thousand people in it. Uh, they'd have worship on Sunday morning, lunch together, Sunday afternoon worship, and then Sunday school. About a thousand people studying studying how to learn how to read and write, but they're studying it through the scriptures and Christian literature. Um, He has a remarkable ministry. He stands against the slave trade. There is a man named, uh, this is a lot of stuff being poured out at you, a man named uh, Alado Equiano, very well-known escaped slave who writes his memoirs. And when he comes to Birmingham, uh, Pierce takes an advertisement with a number of other men in the Birmingham Gazette Uh, saying that they are going to be on the platform with Alado Equiano as he gives his testimony. Uh, He had become a Christian uh, of the slave trade and his fight against slavery. So he identifies himself with a number of causes like that. But at the heart of his his ministry was the preaching of the gospel. And as I said, around 330 converted under his ministry that we know of that become members of the church. Um, He was known as the silver-tongued. Uh, Pierce said when he first stood up to Fuller said when he first stood up to preach, uh, sometimes his voice was a little high. But he said as he got going, there was there was both this this, this, this torrent of scriptural truth and this affection, and uh, people thought they had never heard preaching when they heard him. Uh, one of the greatest preachers of the 19th century, William J, who had a ministry in a place called Bath. Aboth is very famous in England, kind of the Las Vegas of England in the 18th century. Uh, William J had a powerful ministry there. He was a Congregationalist. He said many years later, about 40 years later after Pierce's death, he said, whenever I think of our Lord as a preacher and the, 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 the mode of his preaching and the style of his preaching, the person who comes to my mind is Samuel Pierce. And he said... Uh, he's the sort of man who when you leave his presence you want to be holy and uh, if you know I'm sure all of you know the story of Robert Murray McShane, or at least if you don't you do need to uh, the men he he was dead at 29 uh, the men that who knew him like uh, the Bonner brothers Horatius Andrew Bonner uh, William Milne never forgot the holiness of the man and that was that was Pierce um, Pierce is Very involved in... I could talk about Pierce's marriage, tremendous marriage, but we're going to leave that. Uh, Pierce is very involved in the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society that sends William Carey to India. And by 1792, 1793, uh, Pierce feels that God is calling him to go to India as well as a missionary. And uh, so he sets aside a period of time praying that God would, would lead in this regard. Finally, in 1794... He comes before the executive council of the Baptist Missionary Society, uh, and they say, no, we think you're best, you, you're best positioned in Birmingham, uh, supporting the mission from there, praying for it, raising funds for it, uh, and so on. A um, couple of things typify he never lost, though, this passion for the lost. And I want to talk about two stories that kind of typify it. One is uh, a place, a little village called Gillsborough, This is up here, north of Birmingham. In 1792, there was a riot in Gillsborough where an Anglican mob burned the Baptist church down. So all through this period, technically, there's no persecution, but there are instances of attack like this. James Hinton in Woodstock, uh, nearly beaten to death, uh, the burning of this church. And the ringleaders are caught, They're prosecuted, money is given to the Baptist to rebuild. And in May of 1794, Pierce is asked to come as the preacher on the day when they rebuild the church. And Andrew Fuller was there that day. And uh, Pierce preached in the morning, and at lunch, right after, a number of the congregation said, brother, that was such a good word. Is there any way you could stay overnight and preach tomorrow? And Pierce said, yes. Uh, if, you, if you will find a congregation, I'll find a sermon. But he said, it's got to be at 5 in the morning because he, want, he, wants, he wants all of the farm laborers who are going out to the fields uh, to give them a possibility to hear. And so 5 o'clock tomorrow morning, the next morning, 200 people showed up to hear the Word preached. About 6 o'clock, 6.30, they've all gone on their way. And Pierce is at breakfast with Andrew Fuller and a man named Francis Augustus Cox, or known as F.A. Cox. F.A. Cox was a young preacher, he was 18 years old. He never forgot what took place that morning. So Andrew Fuller said, brother to Pierce, that was a, that was a tremendous word you gave again today. Thank you so much for it. And, uh, but as he, Fuller said, it was really kind of oddly structured. It seemed to me you preached the sermon, and then you, last 15 minutes, you preached the whole thing over again. Uh, Why was that? And uh, Fuller was kind of joking a little, a bit jovial. And uh, Pierce said, Well, sir, it it was so. I I have my reasons. Well, you didn't say this to Andrew Fuller. I mean, Andrew Fuller was kind of a bulldog. Uh, When he was a young man, he used to be into wrestling. Uh, when he got converted, he felt wrestling was sinful. But he, he admitted many years later, he said, you know, sometimes when I'm, I'm preaching and I look out in the congregation and see a big strapping man, I, I goes through my mind, I wonder if I could pin that guy. I, I wonder if I could throw him and pin him. <laughs> and so he's, he's a bit of a he's a a bit of a bulldog guy, character. And so he, uh, he wasn't going to be put off by Pierce's, you know, I had my reasons. Come on, sir, tell us your reason. And he's, you know, he's, it's, he's joking. He's got no idea why. And uh, finally, after ribbing him and pushing him and cajoling him, Pierce says, well, sir, uh, if, it, if you must have my secret, uh, here then it is. And uh, let me read it to you. Just at the moment I was about to resume my seat, we have this because F.A. Cox took it down in his diary right after it. Just at the moment I was about to resume my seat, thinking I had finished, the door opened. So... He's he's, he's finished his sermon, he's about to conclude, and the door at the back of the church opens. And I saw a poor man enter, of the working class. And from the sweat on his brow, and the symptoms of his fatigue, I conjectured he had walked some miles to this early service. But he'd been unable to reach the place until the close. A momentary thought glanced through my mind. So he's still preaching, right? But he's also thinking about this man. Here may be a man who has never heard the gospel. Or it could be he is a man that regards it as a feast. In either case, the effort on his part demands one on mine. And so with the hope of doing him good, I resolved at once to forget all else. And in spite of criticism and the apprehension of being thought tedious, to give him a quarter of an hour. You can imagine, again, the scene, you know, you've got this congregation 200 or so. The front row, the ministers would normally sit in the front row. And he probably glanced over at Fuller and Cox and a number of other ministers. And ministers, it's very difficult to preach to ministers usually because, I mean, ministers, uh, they know how sermons should be prepared, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the whole, as you can expect. And, and uh, Pierce would have thought, well, you know, this, this man's struggled to get here. Maybe I should give him some time, but what, about, what will they think? And then at some point he must have said, nah, in spite of criticism and in spite of people thinking, I don't know how to preach and being found tedious, I'll give him 15 minutes. We wish we we, we had the other man's story and who was he and what happened. We, we don't have that in this world. But it's a it's a fabulous, fabulous story. Pierre Fuller shut up. Cox said, the great Andrew Fuller was silenced. And you know, he'd been laughing and cajoling. And suddenly, both those who were there at that breakfast table realized, here's a man who loves souls. It would, be easy, <clears throat> it would have been easy for him just to finish the sermon. It would have looked better. No one, no one would have known. But Pierce would have known. That's a, that's a great insight into to his, his life and character. The other insight, which is the one I'm going to finish with, is, is, has a broader context. And the broader context is 1789, the beginning of the French Revolution. Between 1690 and 1815, 125 years, England was at war with France every decade but one. Uh, You name it, the War of Austrian Succession, the War of the Spanish Succession, uh, the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, the War of Jenkins' Ear, that was some captain named Jenkins, who had a British boat who was boarded by a Spanish frigate and uh, during the fight to take control of his boat, his ear got sliced off. He had the presence of mind to pick his ear up and put it in his pocket and turned up in in London with his ear, went to the House of Parliament and was admitted to the House of Parliament, apparently pulled his ear out and said, okay, what what, what are you gonna do about it? Well, the British Parliament declared war on Spain and France. Uh, So it was known as the War War of Jenkins' Ear. The American Revolution. When the American Revolution broke out, the French said, aha, it's a great chance to get back at the British. So they sent troops over to, uh, under a Marquis Lafayette uh, to help uh, the Americans. And then the French Revolution. French Revolution starts in 1789. Within two years, the French figure, the rest of Europe would like our revolution as well, uh, which they didn't, but the French exported it. And within a year, Britain is the only nation in Europe standing against the French. And between 1792 and 1815, that's uh, 23 years. It, there was one year of peace. 22 years of world war between the English and the French, and it was the culmination of 125 years of war. Uh, the English defined themselves. I mean, I grew up in England. I know how we, the English, thought about the French. The English defined themselves. We're not French. That's what it means to be English, we're not French. We're not French, we're not Catholic. Those are two critical things. And the uh, truth of them is they hate the French. Um, I have a very interesting pastime. I, I love libraries. Sometimes when I'm in a library, and I haven't had a chance to go, one back here, I had a few minutes the other week, but uh, I love libraries, and sometimes when I've got a, maybe an hour to kill, quote unquote, I'll just go down shelving in an area that I like and pull books off at random. Let's we'll see what I, I can find. I've, I found all kinds of things over the years. I was doing this once in a library in Ontario called McMaster University Library. It's about 10 minutes from where we live. Both of my children did their bachelor's degrees there. And I was in their English lit section around 1800. That's the 19, early 19th century. And I pulled off um, a book uh, of a man who was born in 1800, and this was now 1882, and he, it, was the, it was called The Memoirs of a Long Life. And he was talking about how when he was raised as a little boy, four or five years old, 1804, 1805, just after this period, Pierce dies in 1799, he said his father would regularly put him on his knee and give him three pieces of advice. Number one, you need to fear God. That's a good piece of advice. Number two, always obey your mother. That's another good piece of advice. So Two good pieces of advice. Piece of advice number three, hate the French. I mean, it was bizarre. Here's this four-year-old kid being told to hate the French. He probably heard that umpteen times. That's the one, he remembers it like 78 years later, his dad telling him, hate the French. Now I'm positive, I didn't do this, but I'm positive I could. I'm positive i went to the French literature section, same period of time, pulled a book at random, the memoirs of a long life. I probably come up at least with the same thing, you know, hate the English. There is no love lost between these two people. Between 1792 and the 1815, the French and English are involved in a war as brutal and bloody as the Second World War, and England finds herself in the same position that England found herself in 1940 and 41, before the entrance of America into the war. She was the only power in Europe, apart from Russia, that stood against Hitler. And likewise, in 17, the 1790s, she was the only power that stood against Bonaparte. In 1798, the French, the English scored a tremendous naval victory. They caught the French fleet at anchor in the Nile River and destroyed it. And the king uh, asked that every church in England have a Sunday of thanksgiving to God for the destruction of the French fleet. Pierce preached on that day. This is what he said. Should anyone expect that I shall introduce the destruction of our enemies by the late victory gained off the coast of Egypt <clears throat> as the object of pleasure and gratitude, he will be disappointed. The man who pl- takes pleasure in the destruction of his fellow men is a cannibal at heart. To the heart of him who calls himself a disciple of the merciful Jesus, let such pleasure be an everlasting sane stranger. In that sacred volume, which I revere as the fair gift of heaven to man, the Bible, I am taught of one blood, God hath made all nations. It is impossible for me not to regard every man as my brother and to consider, this is the critical line, national differences ought not to excite personal animosities. Pierce is not a pacifist. If, If I had time to show you, he does believe in the right and responsibility of a nation to defend itself against foreign enemies. The problem is, in wartime, which you may well know, the way in which we tend to justify, and men tend to to justify the killing of other human beings, is you have to, to some degree, demonize them. You have, to some degree, lessen their humanity. The idea that I'm actually killing somebody else's husband, or their brother, or their child, or their father, you think long enough about that, it's gonna, it's gonna have a really difficult toll upon you. And so, in, in times of war, we build, we build hatred against the enemy. And here, Pierce is basically our, saying that um, our our differences between the French. Yes, we must, we must prevent their invasion of our country. But these people are human beings who need a savior. Not long after this, he fell ill. He caught, he caught cold in a rain. Um, He uh, kept preaching, it worsened, Uh, by December, he preached this in in, uh, the, the fall of 1798, by that December he could hardly speak, he was bedridden, he didn't know it but he had tuberculosis and it would kill him in the fall of 1799. In March of 1799, if you ever go to the Angus Library in Oxford, which is the repository of a lot of Baptist literature, I I first saw what I'm going to read to you in a minute there. um, I asked to see the love letters of Samuel Pierce. There's about 70 love letters. um, And we don't have time to talk about that, so I'm going to jump over that. But when I was brought the love letters, I was brought a sheet of paper, about an eight and a half by 11, with about 20 statements on it in pencil, written by Sarah Pierce, which she copied as her husband was dying. He would normally take half a minute or a minute to say a word. Then you have to catch his breath and say another word. He wrote a letter to to, uh, William Carey. And he told Carey in the March of 1799, remember he's dying of tuberculosis, and he says this, I have been endeavoring for some years, and each of those words would have taken 25 to 30 seconds to get out. I've been endeavoring for some years to get five of our ministers to agree they will apply themselves to the French language. Then we, remember his situation, we might spend two months annually in France and satisfy ourselves that Christianity was not lost in France for want of a fair experiment in its favor. Who can tell what God might do? You need, to, you need to see a number of things. I spent the time on the, the larger picture. England's at war with France. Who are the French? They're our hated enemies. We've been at war with them for 125 years, and actually the wars go way back, long before that. Um, they're anti-English. They're Catholic. <laughs> they're linked to the Antichrist, the Pope. Um, he's dying. What he's thinking about is we need to learn to speak French. And then five of us could go over and preach for two months. And who could, who could tell what God might do? It'd be like, think of this, this is the Second World War, okay? Here we are in Kentucky, and it's 1942, before D-Day, before the invasion of Europe. Uh, Europe is dominated by uh, Nazi Germany. Obviously, Britain is still free. Uh, America is now in the war. It'd be like five Kentucky pastors agreeing to learn German (laughs) uh, and then get parachuted into Germany for two months going around Germany, preaching in German. I don't know how many of you speak another language. I can speak French to some degree. As soon as I open my mouth, anybody who's French knows I'm an Anglo. In fact, the way you carry yourself, I remember going to a restaurant once in Ottawa and uh, the maitre d' came to the person in front of me. And before the person in front of me could speak, he spoke to him in French. I thought, this is brilliant. I get to practice my French. He came to me, and immediately, instead of saying bonjour, he said hello. And I'm thinking, why does he know, how does he know I'm English-speaking? I hadn't said a word. And just the way we carry ourselves, our clothing, our hairstyles give us away... Um, and then the difficulty of speaking another language. By the time you get to 15, 16 years old, your tongue is fixed. And that's why you have problems learning another language because your tongue is meant for your language and other languages have sounds that your language doesn't. French has about five or six sounds, which is very difficult for us who are English speaking to speak. And uh, I have a brother who's, uh, a brother-in-law who's a linguist and he knows exactly where your tongue, he studied where your tongue has to be to put those sounds. So he's told me, Michael, okay, so when you're coming to that sound in French, your tongue needs to be hitting the roof of your mouth and just about breathing out a little bit to your front front teeth. I've got enough problems thinking about the words I'm about to say. I'm trying to figure out, like, where's my tongue right now and where is it hitting and whatever. I mean, it is not easy to learn another language. And French, I mean, any Indo-European language, French, Italian, Spanish, I mean, they're going to be the easier of the languages. So, as soon as they would have opened their mouths, the people probably would have known they were English. But let's say they learned French fluently. I mean, it, this is remarkable. Here is England at war with their, a, a mortal enemy, and what he's thinking about and he's praying about is the gospel. Please know what I'm not saying. This is very important. I'm not a pacifist. I believe firmly in the right of nations to defend themselves sovereignly. But there's something more important than the kingdoms of this world. And that's the gospel and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very easy for us in our context to demonize certain enemies. And I suspect for us it's probably Muslims. And uh, even though uh, my own father came out of that world, I've been... I'm completely westernized. I mean, I've never lived in that world, even though I know my dad did. I was born in England. And I should know differently. But it's all too easy for me to slip back into the ways of this world's thinking when I see, say, somebody wearing a hijab or hijab you know, the full covering or not, and start to, the fears and all that. What I should be thinking, as Pierce did, of the gospel and the need of these men and women for the sake, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Pierce died in 1799, in October. A man who preached for him a number of times, William Ward, who eventually went to India, said of him after his death, I saw more of God in him than any other person I have ever seen. And one of the reasons why I think Samuel Pierce's story is so important is that there are these figures in church history who are just remarkable individuals, who in the space of maybe 10 years have 50 or 60 years of Christian living, just pressed into a very short space and are just shining examples for us. When Fuller wrote his story, uh, Fuller admitted, he was not a perfect man. He had his foibles, he had his mistakes, he had his failings, but he would have echoed, I saw more of God in this man than any other person I'd ever met. And it's important for us to remember these men these women, these remarkable examples of spirituality.
2: Thank you for listening to the Weekly Discourse. If you have been blessed by this week's discourse, please consider subscribing to the Man of God Network so that you can continue to be blessed with resources like these. If you would like to learn more about Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, visit us at cbtseminary.org. That's cbtseminary.org.